0: And welcome to The Real Investment Show. Of course, it is Thursday, and that means that Michael Leibowitz joining us this morning. And the topic of the day is, of course, inflation, because inflation is really the concern that drives a few things here. First of all, inflation is important for the average American because, obviously, higher rates of inflation— you know, that kind of crimps your lifestyle a bit here, right? Your your dollars that you earn simply don't go as far as as they should, because you're paying higher prices for things that you live on every day. Now, unfortunately, we don't count some of those things that you pay for every day in the inflation calculation. We try to strip those things out, like food and gas, you know, basic living essentials, um, and so we don't we don't calculate those. Then there's some other things that we Makes, I I shouldn't say we, the the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, uh, tries to account for and tries to make an accounting of um, relative to how it impacts the economy as a whole, things like rent and homeowners' prices. Now, we need a quick trip in history here just to get, you know, kind of lay a baseline of how we got here before we start talking about what here is previous to about 1998 inflation was calculated on a fairly reliable basis and a logical one there was a basket of goods and each year that same basket of goods was repriced and the difference between the the, ba- the prices in the baskets of goods from one year to the next was inflation and so it was fairly reliable. Think about it this way. You go down to the store, you buy a dozen eggs today, and the next year you go buy a dozen eggs on the same day. You compare the prices. That's your inflation, right? So fairly logical approach. Well, in 1996, 97, 98, um, and if you remember, there was a very brief moment that we didn't have a budget deficit. And that brief moment was when Bill Clinton raided Social Security, took $2 trillion out of Social Security, put it into the general budget, and replaced the Social Security money with IOUs. And that very briefly created a budget surplus. Now, here's the problem with that is that it didn't last long because we didn't change any of our spending behaviors, and we quickly went back into a deficit. But in order to suppress, because now we have these IOUs now sitting in Social Security, we needed to change the calculation of inflation to suppress the amount of payments that go out every year for Social Security. Those are called the COLA adjustments, cost of living adjustments for Social Security. So the Clinton administration brought in the Boskin Commission. The Boskin Commission said, oh, yeah, we can make some changes here. And we changed things from, like, home prices— to homeowners' equivalent rent. And we adjusted for things called hedonics, saying, well, if you bought a computer in 1990 uh, versus a computer today, computers today are a lot more powerful and they cost less, so that's deflation. So, you know, um, we did all these jiggerings to CPI to, to suppress the rate of inflation growth. And this is why we haven't had inflation in 20 years, right? It's been a very low rate. Despite the fact that the average homeowner is struggling to make ends meet. Because food costs are going up and, and everything else. Now, long story short, to get us, to, that's, uh, as we say in Texas, that's how we go the long way around the barn to get to the door. Um, Michael Leibowitz did a very interesting um, deep dive into one of the major components of the CPI calculation. Mike, what did you find out? 30%
1: of CPI is broken down into what they call shelter. Shelter is broken down into two categories, owner's equivalent rent, which we call OER, and then just rent. And what's important to understand with shelter, the, the whole 30%, is that the Fed wants to capture rent. That That's what they view as consumption. Right or wrong, it doesn't matter. That's what they do. And that goes back decades. So they try to capture rent, and they capture it in two ways one is what they call owner's equivalent rent and that is essentially looking at your looking at housing values via survey and trying to assess what the rent would be that's 23 percent the other seven percent is more straightforward it's just asking people that are renting what they're renting it for here's the problem and first of all let me just back up one step you're probably asking yourself, well, what about housing? House prices are going through the moon. Isn't that – shouldn't that be part of inflation? Mm -hmm. And the Fed's response would be that that's a financial asset, that that doesn't count. Even though most of us live in the houses that we pay a mortgage on, Mm -hmm. and that's probably our biggest dollar outflow every month, Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't count.
0: Well, now, uh, now, uh, now just – To to back up to what I was saying a little while earlier, prior to 1998, when we changed the inflation calculation, home prices were the measure for inflation. And we actually did use those. And again, this adjustment from the Boston Commission was: well, we need to change this to homeowners' equivalent rent because we can now adjust, we can now manipulate how we calculate that number.
1: Right. And what they would say is not manipulate, but but stabilize. It. <laughs> exactly. What they don't want they don't want prices going up and down. What they're trying to do is capture longer term trends. Right. or Again, sure. right or wrong.
0: Sounds right or good. wrong.
1: That's how they do it. <laughs> Sounds great. So, right. It's also worth Lance. It's also worth uh, the Fed uses PCE. That's the Fed's preferred inflation, right. personal consumption expenditures. They look at they certainly look at CPI, and it's very important to them, but PCE is the one they kind of rest their laurels on. PCE doesn't include shelter at all. Right. So, you know, they look at things without food, gas, shelter. The things you pay what for. What else do we spend money on? <laughs> exactly. Next thing you know, they're going to take out beer <laughs> and football. Then what do we got? We got nothing. nothing.
0: You got nothing. What you have is deflation at that point. Um, So
1: so we go back to CPI and say, okay, they're looking at rent and rent prices should follow mortgage prices. If if someone asked me what I could rent my house for, I'd pull out a spreadsheet. I'd say, okay, here's my mortgage payment. Here's my kind of monthly upkeep. Here are my taxes, miscellaneous fees related to my house. And I'd say, okay, that's five hundred dollars. I need to clear $500 so that I'm making money or at least breaking even on my house. And that would be what I would call my imputed rent. That's the rent that at a minimum I would charge. Then you kind of have supply and demand of the market. But if you can't get me 500 for my house on a monthly basis, there's no reason for me to rent it. You know, and and that's a, that's a broad statement and I get in a lot of people rent houses for very different reasons, Mm -hmm. but that's the methodology. So when you go in and you look at both OER and rent in the BLS data, mm-hmm. there is zero correlation between OER, which is the 23%, and house prices. But again, they're not using house prices. But there's a very high correlation between house prices and mortgage payments. So if you just do some calculations on what are how, what's the national average house price and you calculate a mortgage payment – That should give you a very good indicator of what rent should be for the entire housing um, Mm -hmm. population. Right. Right. There is also zero correlation. Now, here's the more disturbing part. Remember, I said rents were seven percent. That's where they just go ask people, what are you paying in rent? There's zero correlation between that and Zillow puts out a rent index. It's a combination of rents that are actually charged and an estimate they call a Zestimate. Just like they do on their house prices, they do it for rents. I'm not saying Zillow's perfect and they do everything right, but again, there's almost no correlation. Statistically, there's zero correlation. It's insignificant. Meaning that Zillow's estimate of uh, rent prices has no there's no there the two the two figures have nothing to do with each other. It'd be like if Lance was asking me every day what to wear, and I would tell him based on the weather up here in Maryland. Versus Texas, there's no correlation between what he should wear and what my weather is. And unfortunately, when you go through, there's there's no way to predict CPI because there's no correlation between 30 percent of CPI and what's going on in the real world yeah. and now, reality.
0: Yeah. And let's step back to, to Zillow for a second, because, I, you know, this is something that, you know, has always been kind of an interesting situation is, look, I can understand back in the eighties and the nineties, the the Bureau of Labor Statistics had to do surveys by phone, right? They call people up. They said, Hey, Mike, what do you, what do you pay for rent? What do you pay for eggs? You know, whatever it is, it was done by a phone survey. Um, today, is a vastly different story. Uh, Zillow has data. The reason they come up with their Zestimate uh, for Zillow on home prices as well as rent is they have a massive amount of data in their system of homes that are in their system, what they're renting for, what they're selling for. So that data is available. Employment, We have a we have paychecks. We have ADP. We have all these other companies out there that do payroll. They have actual payroll data. Yet the BLS is doing phone surveys on the Tuesday, first Tuesday of every month going, hey, Mike, you working. (laughs) You know, when does when do government agencies move into the 21st century or more importantly, do they not even want to? Because, you know, the real data is vastly different than what their surveys are putting out.
1: Lance, they have their own tax data, right? They have their payroll taxes. They have real estate taxes. They have their own data they could at least begin the process with. But it's it's almost as if they're they're wed to their old ways and they like for whatever reason, a way that they can manipulate results to get stability, which is what they want. They don't want CPI going up and down. And I get that, you know, they want to show the trend versus the month-to-month gyrations, but well, it's becoming a little bit ridiculous.
0: Right. And and look, honestly, this, this really comes down to Social Security, which is a $170 trillion unfunded liability. And this year, they're already going to have a 6% increase in COLA adjustments because of inflation. And we just got the Social Security uh, Trustees report out last week. I've got a report coming up on this uh, the trustee situation is deteriorating rapidly for SSI, showing uh, it's going to, you know, Social Security recipients are looking at, at basically benefit cuts by, 20, by 2034. So, right. you know, they've got problems. And they certainly don't need payments going up because that would accelerate the process of bankruptcy for Social Security. Be right back after the break. We'll talk about exactly what this inflation number should be, what it is, and what this means for inflation and the Fed's taper. Don't go away. For the show this morning, Michael Lee was joining me. We we're talking a little bit about uh inflation and this important kind of part of it is that you know, one of the big battles, um, for individuals a lot for years, this has been going on for years. In fact, we, we were writing articles about this back, you know, and and you know, right after the turn of the century, as Fed speakers were making comments and saying things like, well, you know, inflation remains low and. There was a comment made previously said, let them eat iPads, right? Because iPad prices were going up and we don't calculate those things inside in of inflation. We use this thing called a hedonic adjustment to suppress prices of, of technology in particular. Um, even though the prices are going up, we say they're not because you're getting more for your money in terms of they're more powerful. So we make this deflationary adjustment to suppress the impact of higher prices. And, and this is an important point because we've got a Federal Reserve now that is doing $120 billion a month in quantitative easing. Their driver is primarily two focuses on two things. One is the employment situation. So are we or are we not at full employment? Well, right now, as of the last employment report, we're at 5.2% unemployment. Now, that means that what that means is essentially is that 94.8% of the entire labor force that is available for work has a job. Now, I think pretty much in most every environment you would consider a 948 percentile success rate of anything to be pretty darn near perfect. I mean, that's that's pretty high. I mean, if if you're going to I mean, there's always people in a workforce that are never going to work for one reason or the other. They're they're, they just don't want to work. Whatever it is, they're not going to work. But 94.8 percent, you got you to suggest that you're – and that's one – by the way, historically speaking, 95 percent has always been equated to full employment, just by the way. The other thing is inflation. Um, and, of course, the Fed's been talking about for a while that we need to be above 2 percent inflation and 2 percent is the target rate of inflation. We need to be there, et cetera, so forth and so on. Got it. Problem is, is the calculation of, of CPI, and that's what we're talking about this morning, because if you take a look around, the average person is going, hey, I I got inflation like crazy. My house is going up. My rent's going up. My food's going up. My gas is going up. What do you mean there's no inflation? And this is that angst that we get from people, right, because their lives are being very much impacted by higher costs. Tuition, insurance, healthcare. all these things are going up in price, yet the inflation – measure says there is no inflation <laughs> and of course this is what got mike prompted to dig into the homeowner's equivalent rent because we're looking at home you know home prices as a function of incomes is that the highest level ever on record right now right. so how, how can there not be you know higher prices and and well, and again this is what you discovered mike looking in and and looking into the numbers there's no correlation between what the fed, fed says is rent inflation versus what's really going on in rent
1: Right. And look, there is, to be honest, there is higher inflation, right? CPI and PC are both running at 10 plus year highs. But I think if you ask anyone how much have things gone up in price, the things they consume most, mm-hmm. they would give you a number a lot more than 5%.
0: Right.
1: I mean, just just poke around. It's not hard to get easily <laughs> hit the 5%. But I think here's why this is so important today. If we would have had this discussion in June, when's the Fed going to taper in May? We both would have said, look, inflation is running hot, but it's transitory. Things like gasoline and used cars and rental car prices, all those things, <clears throat> as the economy adjusts and normalizes, will we'll, we'll stop rising in price and it will actually start falling. Mm-hmm. They'll actually provide a little bit of deflationary pressure to the broader uh, inflation indices. Mm-hmm. And we both would have said that employment is what we need to be looking out for. Since over the last three months, employment the number of jobs has risen by, I'm um, you know, guesstimating here, but about eight hundred thousand yep. jobs a week, which gets you to say two a month, I'm sorry, gets you to about two point five million jobs over the last three months, approximately. Mm-hmm. We are well on our way to full employment if we're not there already, like Lance just said. Mm-hmm. Complicating that is the fact that we just learned yesterday there's almost eleven million job openings. But there's only eight million technically unemployed people, meaning that there's a job for everyone and they're still looking for three million people to to (laughs) fill other jobs. Right. There's a lot of flaws in that data. But if you go back and look at where we were before uh, the pandemic, it was at a very similar ratio. Right. So so we're at so so we're maybe we're not at full employment, but. There's enough jobs out there that if people want jobs, they can get jobs. Mm-hmm. So to me, if I was on a Fed, I'd say we have fulfilled our mission. We have brought employment down to approximately where it was. I know the unemployment rate is whatever it is, 5.24, 5.2 5. percent today. And it was, you know, a point and a half lower. I get it. But if you really look through the data, we are there and it's nothing we can do anymore. People just have to take jobs. And maybe that will change once they get once this unemployment benefits end, which it ended last week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll see that in a couple of months, whether that is truly having an effect. So now we fulfilled our our employment mission. We have more than fulfilled our inflation mission. This is where I would be very scared if I was the Fed. What if we got inflation wrong? What if it's not transitory? What if transitory is two years? Right? We're hearing these chip shortages could last well into 2023. That tells me that new car prices are going to stay elevated, meaning there aren't going to be a lot of used cars mm-hmm. available on the market. They could stay up. Uh, there's a lot of other things that are applying upward pressure because these shortages are not going away nearly as quick as anyone thought they were. Right. And then you got the big elephant in the room. 30% of CPI is based on on essentially indirectly house prices and rent, both of which are going up 15, 20% a year. So even if CPI captures some of that, captures a third of it, Mm -hmm. you have a big increase coming to CPI, even if used car prices start. Used cars, I think, are 3%. Gasoline is 5%, 6%. You're talking about 30%, -hmm. right? It's a third of the CPI index could potentially jump in price. Now- Again, there's no correlation. A third of the index could drop like a rock. <laughs> exactly. Right? We're, we're literally flipping coins, throwing darts at a dartboard. But but this, that, this but, but that's the problem. Yeah. And that's that's where I think the market is going to start getting very uneasy. I think they're starting to see what we're seeing, and you're starting to see a little more volatility creep in. And I, it 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 feels like the market is starting to question the Fed. Are well, they?
0: Yeah, and that's and I think that's the real question here. You know, you've got 120 billion dollars a month, and and again, as we started out the show talking about, is that, you know, the entire thesis for most investors right now is no longer about fundamentals at all. Um, it's not about hey, I'm buying a, I'm buying this, this 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 company that trades at a discount to fair value. You know, we're buying stocks that are trading at multiples of fair value, and. Right. You know, we and the, the 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 justification for doing that is is oh well the Fed's got my back you know it's 120 billion dollars a month in QE and I think this is where the Fed's getting into a real trap for themselves because they've got to be looking at the economic data slowing down they've got to be looking at record valuations in fact we've heard more and more Fed speakers now mentioning uh, excessive valuations in the markets and they realize that if they start to taper their balance sheet they're going to have a market correction which is going to impact confidence. And at the same time, you've got this inflationary pressure and employment problem. So what do you do?
1: But I I also think that you have a potential confidence problem if they keep the pedal to the metal. Because the market's going to start saying, okay, I get it. Liquidity is good for us. But what are you doing? Inflation is starting to get really hot. And inflation is not good for stock prices, for stock valuations. So that's why this is a trap. They're kind of getting cornered in. And because they, they left the situation for so long. They should have been doing tapering six months ago, nine months ago even, and they didn't. And now the economy is slowing quickly, right? It's not just us saying this, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, even the Fed is telling you that growth is going to be somewhat normal for the third quarter at three. You know, they're all kind of in a 3% range. Right. A little high, a little high compared to normal, but much more normal than what we've seen for the last uh, four or five quarters. Right. And they're going to, they're gonna take their foot off their pedal off the pedal at that point. And I think they're all you know, I think the Fed's all in agreement. It's just a question of whether they announce it yesterday or whether they announce it in November. Right. Right? That's the that's the big debate that's going on at the Fed. And I think there's a lot of Fed members that are increasingly worried about inflation.
0: Yeah. Well they've got so the Fed meeting is uh, what, week after next, the first September? Because you got one I in September, so. then one in November. So, I mean, theoretically, we could see a announcement on some you know, really kind of that first setup for taper come as early as the end of this month. And it'll be interesting to see how the market responds to that. Technically and, and historically, what happens is when the Fed has announced taper, the markets tend to kind of slough that off and go, "Yeah, okay, they're going to start tapering, and that, that's going to happen in you know three months or six months or whatever they think the number is." And yeah, yeah, they're going to go from 120 billion a month to 110 billion a month. No big deal. Markets kind of hang in there, and that's kind of what I would expect to happen here. But again, given the fact the markets had such a large run, um, is so deviated from long term means, and and, you have such low volatility now, you've got internal deterioration going on. You know, there may be a bigger response to this than than we might expect. In fact. More and more of the kind of the major investment houses are starting to talk about a correction between 10 to 20% coming sooner rather than later. We'll talk about that with Michael Leibowitz when we come back from the break. Don't go away. All right, getting ready to wrap things up. What does all this mean, right, for markets and the Fed? And, of course, as I said, more and more of the major institutions are starting to come out now and warn of a 10, 10 to 20% correction in the markets, does that mean tomorrow? Does that mean go sell everything today? No, that's not what that means. But as we have talked about here for a while, you know this very low volatility environment that we've been in over the last really six, seven, eight months, really since last November, has, has really um, exceeded durations that normally, normally in markets, you have a correction of five to 10% with some regularity. corrections in any given year are are not outside the realm of possibility. And the last time that we had a year where we went 12 months of ultra low volatility was in 2017. And then in 2018, you had three near 20% corrections. So, you know, that the it's this idea that low volatility breeds high volatility and what required or what stipulates that change is a change in the underlying narrative, and of course that underlying narrative remains the Fed and paper. You know, and so there's some things that are going on. I mean, look, you've got a valuation deviation right now. Uh, Valuations are extremely high levels, and we keep ratcheting up numbers. I just wrote an article uh, on Tuesday talking about S&P 5000 analysts are now rushing to push prices higher, and not because they can value that, is simply playing catch up with stocks. They, you know, the 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 return this year has exceeded a lot of their price targets, so now they just ratchet up to the next highest level and says, okay, that's their next target. Um, doesn't matter that they're going to be right or wrong. It's just they have to put a target out there. So that's their target, 5,000 now. It's a nice big round number. But the problem is, is that if you do get that, even though you're getting growth in earnings, which, by the way, the earnings expectations, as we stated, would happen, have already started to get ratcheted down here uh, going into 2022. So all of a sudden, these very high levels of expectations starting to come down because of weaker economic growth. But yet price targets are going up. So that means valuations remain elevated. We're at the second highest level of valuations on record. And in some measures, we're at the highest level of valuations on record ever in history. So, you know, what you're paying for investments is certainly something worth paying attention to. But, again, a lot of these major banks started to come to this realization, hey, the economy is slowing down. Earnings are going to come down and that is really what you have to have to start watching for when you have an overpriced overextended markets that's what tends to lead to corrections. now what you need for that is some type of catalyst some type of statement some type of action some type of issue that spooks the markets changes psychology from bullish to bearish and that creates that kind of first initial wave of selling and that's going to be the first thing we we kind of set up for so let's i'm gonna throw this back to mike so mike with this kind of premise and now that more and more, you know, one thing is, is that with more and more banks coming online to say there might be a correction, maybe there won't be a correction because generally by the time the institutions are telling you something, you know, it's, you know, doesn't ever turn right. out to be that case. Right. But, um, you know, kind of what are some ideas here? Where should, you know, where should investors be looking to maybe put some money if they are worried about a correction? You know, what should they be thinking about doing?
1: So so I think we've seen the market doing a little bit of this already. Right. If you look at what has performed really well in the last couple months, it's utilities, which tend to be more fairly valued. I'm not saying they're cheap, but they're more fairly valued. Mm-hmm. The real estate uh, REIT sector. And then you have kind of technology and communications, which are that that primarily means Google, Facebook, yeah. Amazon and uh, Microsoft, right? right? That's what we mean by technology and communications these days. And it's thought that those companies have very stable earnings, that when we go into a recession, Microsoft's earnings don't flip around too much, people aren't gonna use Google less, et cetera, et cetera, Facebook, same with Apple. Um, so, So the market has been gravitating towards those sectors. We've also seen bond yields drop, Bonds are traditionally a safe place to invest when the stock market turns down because money flows into it. And look, I get it. You're not getting paid in yield, right? You're not going to make a whole lot of money in the coupon payment every six months, but you potentially can make a lot of money in the price change. And at this point, when you're looking at bonds, you have to think about what's the potential price change. And that may sound strange, Mm -hmm. but that's what investors are doing in stocks, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone buying most stocks these days are not looking at what it's worth because what it's worth is down. It's right. below where it's at today. What they're looking at is where can I get the next sucker to buy it at? And that's <laughs> at a higher price. And bonds are a similar game, right? It, it's, it's really about price. We used to buy a bond for yield. Hey, I get 5% a year. That's great. I'm happy with that. And the price will fluctuate and I'll deal with those fluctuations. Now it's all about the price, not the yield or coupon. So I think first and foremost, just look at your portfolio. And if you're not comfortable, shift to more conservative, what we call lower, lower beta, meaning that they react less to the market. Uh, think about which sectors are more fairly valued. And, you know, just in general, look at your exposure. If you have too many stocks and you don't sleep well, or if you look at, you know, the markets, down, S&P's down about 15 points, 20 points this morning. If that makes you anxious, You probably have a little too much stock. So just sell some. Mm -hmm. Bring that number down so that if the stock market does drop a few percent or if it somehow drops more than a few percent, which I think is illegal now, Lance, (laughs) uh, you 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 don't take as big losses. You can buy options. There's a number of ways to protect yourself. But I think first and foremost, pay attention because the environment of the last year is not the environment we're in anymore. The Fed is changing, the Fed will be doing something. Now, whether that's in September or November or December, we don't know. And where we're at now is a point where stocks are valued so much more above what they're worth. So you can think of the price of a stock and you can go through its earnings, you can go through what its future products are, where it's gonna find growth, where it may not find growth. And you can say, okay, I would pay 10 times what I think their earnings will be in 10 years. That, to me, is value, right? Mm -hmm. And we come up with a price of $100. Well, that stock price may be $150, and that extra 50 is the Fed. It's the liquidity. It's this feeling that the Fed is invincible and that the Fed can support prices just by, by keeping markets very liquid. And you have to ask yourself, is that 50 points just as valid as it was four months ago? And that's what the market's doing now. It's questioning that liquidity premium. Now, I can't tell you what that liquidity, liquidity premium is worth, but I know it's worth a lot more than 5 or 10%. We can look at valuations, mm-hmm. and like Lance said, just about every single one of them is in record territory. Even CAPE, which we thought the 1990 high of, I think it was 44, mm-hmm. was invincible territory. We're at 39 or 40 right now. Right. If right. you go back to twenty nine it was in the low mid thirties. Nineteen twenty nine it was in the low mid thirties. Mm-hmm. And the, the historical average is closer to like seventeen or sixteen. So you can easily make a case that we are two times overvalued. Right? Doesn't mean the market's gonna crash. Right. We've been very overvalued for a long time. And the Fed's very sensitive to the markets. The Feds will react at some point. They're not going to react if the market falls one percent, but will they react at five percent, 10 percent, 20 percent? They always seem to react. Mm -hmm. So follow follow what's going on. Look at pay, pay closer attention to the sector rotations. Right. We've had a lot of days where what we'll say is the generals are doing well, but the troops are falling behind. So the FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, et cetera, Tesla are all having good days. And the market may be up five or 10 points, but then you look at your portfolio and three quarters of it is red mm-hmm. and look at the market. Three quarters of it is red. And that's what's been going on. So the generals are given the appearance that the market is strong and doing well. But we have to look at all these underlying signs. Look at valuations. Look at what's going on in bonds. You know, look at what's going on with cash levels and. Try to foresee what's going to happen. And again, if you're anxious and you can't sleep, you own too many stocks.
0: Right. And I think that's really kind of the key point here is that, you know, if you look at, you know, how you're allocated, a lot of people have gotten over allocated to technology because that's been one of the areas that's been doing well. So but it's not just in, you know, good, reliable, strong, fundamentally strong technology stocks. There's a lot of companies that people are buying into that. Have no earnings growth. They have no revenue growth. You know, there's they're very speculative areas. So, it's important to to make sure and look at what you own and really understand why you own it. And and if you can't, if you if, it really comes down to the two things. One is, if you don't know what the company does, you probably shouldn't own it, <laughs> right? And and if you only own it, and if your whole thesis well, it's been going up a lot, um, maybe that's a good time. And again, this is you know the question we always get is like. You know, should I sell it? And no, you don't have to sell the whole thing. You can sell some of it. Take some of your profits off the table and hold the rest of it still going up. You know, Manage the position and have a trailing stop on it. Pick a point somewhere in space that says, if the stock retraces back to this point, I'm not going to lose any more of my gains. At least have some measure out there to reduce the risk of, of giving up all of your money. And You know, I I can't tell you how many times people go, well, I don't want to sell it because I don't want to pay taxes on it. Well, the easiest way not to pay taxes on a stock is to turn it back into a loser and then sell it because then you don't have any gains. So, you know, manage the portfolio. The whole goal is to make money here um, and to make money with the least amount of risk possible. And if you can do that, you'll kind of win the long-term game. You know, whether or not we get a 10 or 20% correction this year, nobody knows, but there's certainly the risk building that we will simply from a function of time and duration and extension, the kind of the laws of physics apply to markets just like anything else. So Pay attention to your money, of course. Always get by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Michael Leibwitz's latest article is out on this inflation number, all the charts and data to back it up, Um, as well as our recent article on S&P 5000. It's all on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Sign up for our daily market commentary. That'll be coming out here in just a few minutes for you. So if you subscribe now at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, you'll come to your email inbox. And, of course, our newsletter will be out this weekend. Stay tuned for the next show tomorrow, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you then. It's a rich man's world